Hello, and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations. I am Father Gregory Pine, an assistant director of the Thomistic Institute, and uh, I'm very delighted for this particular episode to be joined by Father Romanus Cesario. Thanks so much for joining, Father Romanus. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Well, uh, I, I suspect that many of our listeners will know you from past lectures that you have given at Thomistic Institute chapters or conferences. I recall in a particular way a lecture that you gave at Harvard for the graduate chapter and a lecture that you gave for the Dominicans and Renewal of Thomism Conference in 2013, uh, both of which were wonderful contributions. Um, and then your, your many publications and interventions uh, in ecclesial things. Uh, but for those who don't know you, would you just say a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, and the types of ecclesial work in which you're involved? Well, my name, as already mentioned, is uh, Romano Cesario, and I'm a Dominican priest like Father Pine. We belong to the same province. And um, I'm old, as is evident. And so I was born in Boston, but I lived along the East Coast in various places for most of my life. Uh, I uh, was ordained in 1971, and after a few years of undergraduate teaching at Providence College, was sent to Fribourg in Switzerland, where many Dominicans before me had gone, and not a few afterwards. And uh, I began my graduate studies uh, with Father Coleman O'Neill, an Irish Dominican. I returned to Washington, and uh, I've had three assignments throughout the more than 50 years of my priesthood. The first was at the House of Studies in Washington. The second was at St. John's Seminary, a diocesan seminary in Boston. And uh, after reaching well retirement age by any standard, I was uh, honored to be given the Adam Cardinal Mitre Chair of Theology here at Ave Maria University in Southwest Florida, outside of Naples. That chair had been held by a priest who was a good friend of mine, a diocesan priest, Father Matthew Lamb. Uh, throughout that time, uh, uh, I was able, fortunately, to write some books, publish some articles, and uh, speak, as you indicated, not only for the Thomistic Institute, but for uh, at other venues and conferences. Um, wonderful. The, the occasion of our speaking today uh, and of this episode of Off-Campus Conversations is one of the aforementioned books, so a recently published book that we see here on the Seven Sacraments of the Catholic Church, uh, which you recently had published with Baker Academic. Um, certainly, the sacraments are a theme, a reality, very precious to you, uh, and part of your theological formation. It's interesting that you're arriving here at the sacraments uh, after having written a number of books in moral theology. Uh, so you adopted a, a quintessentially Dominican course of studying dogma, and then from that background, um, you know, making various contributions in the matter of morals. But I thought that may maybe as an introduction to the book, we could talk a little bit about your formation, a little bit about your studies uh, with Father Coleman O'Neill at the University of Freiburg, because it, it seems like from my very superficial and cursory review of the literature that Previous to Father Coleman O'Neill, the tendency in the English-speaking world when describing the sacraments was to focus largely on uh, certain duties and obligations or certain prescriptions of canon law, all of which are important and necessary for valid administration, but didn't necessarily give as much time or bandwidth to 
um, yeah, their, their import for our ongoing conversion uh, and spiritual growth. But certainly Father Coleman O'Neill made, made signal contributions on that front. So I don't know if you would yeah, mind talking a little bit about your formation, his insights, the way in which he shaped you as a, as a theologian, as a priest. Well, uh, you're, you're correct, by the way, in your analysis of uh, the, the way a sacramental theology was taught before the council. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was in the studium at the seminar, Dominican seminarian, the uh, canon lawyer uh, tradi- uh, taught us sacramental theology, and that was the case in almost every seminary was considered important for the young priest to know how to do it. And of course, within the context of uh, canon law, that uh, cast a certain color over the sacraments as juridical acts. And people took for granted that they did something, but they didn't talk a lot about how, what they did in any detail. And um, they uh, were scrupulous uh, to observing the necessity of receiving the sacraments. Um, that's a fairly large generalization, but I think it's true. Certainly it's true that in seminaries, sacramental theology was taught mostly by canon lawyers. But to this day, for example, uh, half of the marriage course uh, is taught by a canon lawyer because the church is concerned that the marriages are valid. And... Uh, and actually, to find someone to talk about the sacramentality of marriage is a difficult thing. Uh, I know that because um, I had occasion to study that question at a certain point in time. So, uh, however, there's another axis here besides the traditional confining of sacramental theology, much as moral theology to canon lawyers, legalists at least. And that is uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the council's document on the liturgy. Because by the time I arrived in Fribourg and met O'Neill, by and large, uh, sacramental theology had become eclipsed by a thing called liturgical studies. Liturgical studies contained many worthwhile things, but at the same time, uh, theses that had been standard in sacramental theology since the Middle Ages, since St. Thomas, and surely since the Council of Trent, which is a sort of defining moment here for the sacraments, um, had been set aside or assumed or given lip service, but without much explanation. And by and that uh, movement was not, unfortunately, Father O'Neill died young, and he wasn't able to turn that around, despite his writing two books, one which is, both of which is still in print, but one which is very popular, Meeting Christ in the Sacraments, which I re-edited to bring it up to date after his death. That's available at Alba House. And the other, later, was a thing called Sacramental Realism, which was a theoretical study that, uh, in a way that was very discreet, because after all, he was an Irishman uh, and a sophisticated Irishman. Uh, he criticized some of the movements, especially the reliance on the category of symbol to explain the sacraments. And the famous line in that second book, he says, if uh, the medieval theologians, who were really the ones to bring this teaching on the sacraments together, 
had wanted to say that the sacraments are caused because they're symbols. They could have said it because they had the ability to make that kind of uh, distinction and that kind of um, uh, instruction by use of the Latin language, but they didn't. They didn't. Sacraments were first of all understood to be causes before they were signs or symbols. As a result, uh, to get to my book by the time, oh, so I, I came to realize that there had to be a retrieval of sacramental theology in the way, truth to be told, that Father Sylvia Pinquez, who helped me a great deal in my moral theology books, uh, had retrieved St. Thomas's uh, moral theology from the hands of the casuists, of the casuists, yeah. Uh, I, I can go on about that with many interesting details, <laughs> no, but uh, I think we don't want to overwhelm your audience. No, it's it's great. It's it's very fascinating for me in part um, because you know having been in Freeburg for the past three years, I realized that unpacking the heritage thereof will take some time because I knew what I had previously to some degree. I came into possession of something else upon arrival. Uh, but I think that it'll be some number of years before I recognize in its fullness what exactly that is. So to hear of the historical situation also helps me to appreciate like how this is distinct, like the, the distinction between liturgical studies or liturgiology and then sacramental theology, or, um, you know, like tracking with the distinction between religious studies and genuine theology. Like there is a sacra doctrina, which concerns the dispensation of the sacraments. That's, you know, that's just part of the atmosphere of the University of Freiburg, or like the, the kind of theological formation that one would receive there, which I suppose I presumed, but perhaps I ought not presume it. <laughs> perhaps I should be grateful for it. It seems like the latter is more so the case. <laughs> um, but then perhaps turning to the content of your book um, and the particular way in which you chose to structure it. Um, so when it, when it says the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, uh, it's not just you know, like a, a facile listing of seven things. You have a way of describing it in terms of what's common to the sacraments um, and then particular thematics which are present throughout the study of each of them. And this notion for you of causality uh, as something to be recovered seems to be, uh, if not foremost, at least in the foreground. So could you explain in part the— No, but it's the, not uh, me. It's the Council of Trent and St. Thomas, mostly St. Thomas. <laughs> Hey, well, that's wonderful company to keep. Um, could you help us to appreciate perhaps this this notion of causality and how we can trace it through the sacramental dispensation uh, as recipients of those sacraments, but also as students of St. Thomas's theology? Well, the the students in uh, Boston, where I began teaching this course, uh, once composed a song from uh, a phrase that I use very often in class, which was simple and has a catechetical. Uh, usefulness, I would say. The sacraments do something, which is to say they cause. Well, what do they cause? Each of them has their specific effect. Baptism, to be succinct here now, new nature, new nature in Christ, a second nature. Confirmation, okay, a strengthening each of that capacity, uh, especially to face an adult world. Uh, penance, the forgiveness of sins. The Eucharist, 
Well, everyone knows that. St. Augustine teaches the church that. Uh, unity and charity. Uh, holy anointing, the forgiveness of sin, and perhaps the healing of the body, which is an important do something uh, in holy anointing. And then you have the sacraments that the catechism calls of service to the communion, uh, holy orders. That's a very important cause and do. And it's called character, character of holy orders. That came under assault in Lumen Gentium, or the people that were writing Lumen Gentium, such that uh, in the famous footnote, Pope Paul VI had to make it clear that the common priesthood of the faithful is essentially and not a matter of degree different from the sacred priesthood of ordained priests, Catholic priests. And in marriage, it's called the bond, uh, which has a, a permanence about it in principle, uh, which is, of course, what every married couple who enters the bond uh, wants to preserve. So uh, talk about that uh, begins to talk about what the world of divine grace accomplishes in the members of Christ's body. Please note in all of that, celebration. Well, there are things to celebrate. There's no question about that. And uh, cultures, as almost everyone knows, celebrates each one of those sacraments. Uh, baptism, certainly, and with family festivals, con all of them, for confirmation, perhaps uh, penance and reconciliation isn't celebrated publicly, but it's celebrated by the beneficiary of it, marriages, ordinations, and so forth, first holy communion. So there are all aspects of celebration, but celebration doesn't come close to establishing the objective work that the sacraments accomplish by their lawful administration. So I want to ask a question about the place of faith. I'm thinking of a line that occurs in St. Thomas's Corpus on a couple of occasions that, um, like, the divine power is applied, as it were, through the mysteries of Christ and through faith and sacraments. I'll say through faith spiritually, through the sacraments corporeally. So it's clear the sacraments aren't magic, right? Um, they entail some engagement on the part of the recipient, specifically an engagement of mind and heart. So how is it that we can speak of the, the sacraments as sacraments of faith, or what role does faith play in our reception and our profiting from them? Well, the first and most obvious, when I say that the sacraments do something, and what they do is communicate divine life to those who are properly disposed, uh, that's a statement of faith. There's no empirical proof for that. The baby doesn't look different after it's been baptized. And then, as you know, the priest walking away from the bishop who ordains him doesn't change in any noticeable physical way. Uh, it's, so the sacraments are mysteries of faith because they are unseen. Uh, if you don't believe at all in the sacramental dispensation, receiving them it would be an act at least of material sacrilege. Now, 
if you go to the catechism, you'll find that uh, it lists a whole slew of ways in which faith, as it were, supports the sacramental system. And that simply recapitulates in a very brief and unelaborated way the fact that each sacrament requires faith in a different way. Baptism of an adult as opposed to a child uh, does not require justifying faith. As a matter of fact, it would be impossible for that to happen because otherwise the sacrament wouldn't be a cause of justifying faith. Now that's a Reformation debate, and O'Neill, by the way, explains that in Sacramental Realism with a remarkable lucidity, um, and I try to summarize that. But anyone who knows Catholic theology knows that if you make baptism a sign of the justified, as most uh, non-Catholic baptisms are, uh, which is why child baptism is, is more or less uncommon preference, certainly in the evangelical churches, to uh, adult baptism. Well, you've destroyed the sacramental gift and mystery. The same can be said analogically. I mean, I don't, I don't think we have enough time to do this in any detail with people who are in grave or mortal or serious sin who receive the sacrament of, of penance and reconciliation. Are they moved by some uh, kind of faith, unformed faith? Yes. Is that justifying faith? No. And that's when uh, the sacrament, to use St. Thomas's expression, turns the attrition, which is a sorrowful sin because of the harm it does to us or will do by way of punishment, into contrition, which makes that an act of sorrow for having offended God. And so again, each of the sacraments has its own way of uh, 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 relating to the theological virtue of faith. The most obvious example of a sacrament required for living faith is the Eucharist. If you hold up the host and you say the body of Christ and the recipient says no, well, I think priests would be hesitant to, to uh, distribute, the, to communicate that person, barring extraordinary circumstances we have to discuss here. In the old days, this was all summarized in catechetical teaching about sacraments of the living and sacraments of the dead. Baptism and penance were called sacraments of the dead. The other five sacraments of the living. And, the, and the, if there was something good about the old juridical, everyone was in, the priests, the parish priests, always had confessions after the marriage uh, rehearsal. No dinner, confession. Because the couple was impressed on the couple, even if they'd been away for some time, especially one of them, that they should receive the sacrament in the state of grace and that, that and therefore was justifying faith. So then I want to. Um, I trust couple... that so it sounds familiar to you. I mean, I, uh, you, you're looking. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> that is familiar to me. Although 
I only exercised uh, an ordinary sacramental ministry in the context of a parish for one year, and um, I, yeah, I lament that that was not the standard practice, uh, but who have I to blame but myself insofar as I was the one celebrating the sacrament? Uh, or I suppose in that case, in the okay, West, well, it was the couple, but well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then I, I want to uh, just follow up on a couple of the other preliminary or preliminary considerations uh, with which you begin the book. And, um, you know, certain considerations that track closely with St. Thomas's treatment of the subject matter. Uh, but the first of which is the connection between the sacraments and Christ. I, I suppose it it feels almost crass to suggest that such a connection need be made explicit insofar as the sublime and intimate participation of the sacraments in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ is so pronounced um, in St. Thomas's theological treatment, but also in the reality. And yet it's something that many of us are forgetful of in our own sacramental praxis. Um, so this idea that we meet Christ in the sacraments, which was very precious to Coleman O'Neill, uh, isn't something for which, you know, like the 21st century Catholic ordinarily has a vocabulary and grammar to express. So could you draw out some of those connections, uh, this Christological dimension of the sacraments? Well, in fact, of course, the dissertation I wrote with O'Neill was on Christian satisfaction, which is a Christological thing. It was the satisfaction of Christ. He wanted me to do it because he had was part of the post-conciliar effort to bring about Christian unity, and he was part uh, in Switzerland of the dialogue with the Reformed Church. Calvin, as you may know, did not have, uh, well, shall we say, a deep appreciation for the cross as satisfactory for sins, but as a, the mass of the sacrifice was quite abhorrent to him. Um, and so, uh, but uh, O'Neill wisely understood from listening to the Calvinist uh, pastors and theologians who were in Switzerland, very predominant, as you know, uh, it's divided between Catholics and Reformed. Uh, he recognized that before you started talking about sacrifice, you had to talk about satisfaction, because otherwise the sacrifice didn't make any any sense. So uh, when you open up the Tertia Paz and St. Thomas inquires about why Christ came, the first thing you discover is that he has uh, two sets of reasons. One he calls uh, promotio in bono, and that's the promotion in the good or toward the good, and the other is promotio mali, re removal from evil. So there's both a positive and a negative feature of Christ life, but especially that reaches its apex on the cross. Every, every father of the church recognized uh, the intricate, intrinsic connection between the cross and the sacraments, graphically represented by the many ways in which uh, the sacraments were linked to the pierced side of Christ and the blood that flowed therefrom. Today in the Mass for the Sacred Heart, the uh, preface still reminds us that from his pierced side flows the sacramental uh, blood and water, the fountain of sacramental life in the church. So the blood and the water and the sacramental life of the church are as intimately connected uh, and perhaps obviously of more 
heartwarming and biblical resonance than Aristotle's efficient causality. But uh, so, yes, the sacraments, one can even push further and say they're little Christs. And each of and when St. Thomas sets about to describe why there should be matter and form, uh, he adverts to uh, Christ's metaphysical structure that uh, that's because there's both an immaterial element and a material element that makes up the incarnation, namely divinity and humanity. So the sacraments imitate Christ in their very structure. But uh, then the next step is to unfold the economy of salvation as it unfolds within the church. The biggest problem, truth to be told today, in my judgment, and none of the things we've talked about up to this point, although everything you've talked about uh, is of a special importance, but it's the failure to recognize the need for mediation, hmm. even in the church, but that the divine life and the divine action needs mediation. And one of the reasons I think for that is because of the leveling influence of various philosophies and other movements that aren't even philosophical, they're simply cultural ideological movements. Some of it has to do with the displacement of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm. And her role as a mediatrix of all graces, or at least as, as mediatrix of grace, uh, as John Paul II laid out in Martyr Against the um, Redemptorum. So, uh, yeah, the sacraments are as linked to Christ, as, uh, and it is in, in Christ that the sacraments achieve their power. The, the priest at the altar, as you know, and I hope all the Dominicans know, don't stand there in their own name. No priest administers any sacrament in his own name. In fact, so much so is that the case, holy orders, which is one of the reasons why you need a priest, puts a man in persona Christi, head and shepherd, in the person of Christ. That, you know, to look at that as a privilege that's deprived other people is really, well, it's, it's misguided, shall we say. Uh, it should be corrected because that's not at all what is being said. In fact, if you really want to push the reality, it shows that the man himself is not of much significance. And that the man himself shouldn't conduct the sacraments like he's putting on a play or a musical concert, or some kind of display. He should disappear behind the, the sign action, which includes the words. And then uh, he disappears, so for what purpose? So that Christ, who can only be seen by faith, appears. And I think, I know, I, I let me put, say, so that it's clear to the audience, I, I've had enough experience. I have, don't know many of the young Dominicans, but I, I know uh, enough of them. And I know that that, of course, is a dominant theme of uh, instruction of the young Dominicans of the province of St. Joseph, which is one reason I believe why so many young men are drawn to it. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think... Um... 
certainly in the 21st century, it's time for priests to be priests. Um, and it seems like, you know, what you've described with a, a certain theology of mediation or of instrumentality, uh, a man kind of gets out of the way and comes to discover that the plans of God are destined to unfold through his humanity, not qua his humanity, but qua associated with that of our Lord Jesus Christ in the union affected by, you know, his ordination. And I think one of the key principles perhaps that we've lost sight of, which helps us to gain greater purchase on this phenomenon, is that of character, which you dedicate a chapter to in the book. Um, not necessarily something that we often think of, but there's a sense of dynamism or a sense of um, a kind of moving, flowing um, trajectory, as it were, to character that capacitates a man for the giving of divine things. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit to uh, the phenomenon here or the reality, I suppose, of sacramental character and the place that it occupies in a sound sacramental theology. It occupies a big place and much more than is given to it in contemporary theology, including for some sad reasons. Uh, but that, be that as it may, and that's one of the reasons why I made the points I did about character. One of the great contributions, Thomas contributions of Coleman O'Neill, is to point out that character is the sort of high end of the basic tripartite structure of each sacrament. There's a sign in Latin called sacramentum tantum. There's the grace conferred called, as standard ecclesiastical Latin, is used to doing the res, the thing, tantum. And then there's a sacramentum at res. And O'Neill gives you the whole history of how that came about. And it was not St. Thomas, it was St. Augustine, who recognized that it was necessary to introduce a tripartite structure of the sacraments in order to account for the fact that uh, those who had apostatized during the early uh, persecutions during the time of the Roman Empire in North Africa, and about which there was various uh, split opinions between the Pope and St. Cyprian. St. Cyprian holding for the view that this was so, that apostasy was such a terrible thing, including when you also squealed on other Catholics or handed over, as some of the priests did, the sacred books, that uh, they had to be rebaptized. It's known as the rebaptism controversy. And the Pope in Rome, who didn't have a particular, as far as I know, uh, pedigree, theological pedigree, nonetheless uh, said, no, there's something wrong here. And what he saw wrong was that a sin on the part of man would trump a divine action. I'll say it again. The Pope I want to say by the grace of the patron office, saw that to get into rebaptism uh, and reordination, by the way, which still happens in some parts of the Christian world, that's another discussion, was, amount, uh, was tantamount to saying, evil trumps God. Someone can sin even grievously and eradicate a no trump, if you want, uh, the divine action of the sacrament. And St. Augustine pointed to the, the sheep that wanders from the sheepfold, but has the 
mark. And O'Neill points out the Greek word for mark is roughly comes out character in English. And uh, so that when it's found, it goes back to its owner and isn't, as it were, sold again. So, and and on that, it became clear that uh, three of the sacraments give character. That is to say, they cannot be repeated. And they're the three sacraments that were uh, under discussion in the rebaptismal and reordination controversies. Well, baptism and confirmation, because they kind of go together, and the other is holy orders. But there is some uh, a, a sacramentum at res in the other four. Marriage is the best example. It's called the bond. People can get remarried in ordinary circumstances when one of the spouses dies. But when they, but as long as both spouses live, the bond, is, if it's valid, is valid. The Eucharist is again Saint Augustine who teaches us. Uh, it is true that uh, it's the only place where the res sacramentum is outside of the individual receiver, and it's the unity and charity that exists in the church. Of. Uh, for holy anointing, it's the forgiveness of sins and the possible healing that occurs uh, at the moment of death, which has its own permanence to it. And finally, the one that's most difficult, but St. Thomas, thanks to St. Thomas, we can discover that, uh, is penance. You say, well, how, how does the repeated sinner still carry with him something of the confession that he made of his, let's just take first adultery to make it you know, banal. Well, uh, the fact is that when he comes back, he has the memory of having been forgiven. And that makes a, a big difference if you have no memory of ever having been forgiven. So uh, now, admittedly, the other four sacraments, well, uh, certainly three of them, are matters of theological, I'd say, argument and principle. I'd say three of them because the, the Eucharist, uh, it's pretty difficult not to recognize uh, the permanence of the Eucharist in the real present. However, the, that the three that give character uh, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders. That's in the Catechism. That's Trent. Mostly explained by cannot be repeated what you learn from the history of theology, and it's a good lesson, is why. Maybe then with um, with the last question, and during this year of Eucharistic revival, we could turn to the sacrament uh, of the Most Holy Eucharist. And you've provided along the way, so over the course of the conversation, a variety of resources with which to better understand uh, the sacramental theology of St. Thomas Aquinas per pertaining to the Eucharist, and also to enrich our own sacramental praxis. So I'm thinking, you know, of having described this 
a tripartite formula of the sacramentum tantum, the rest at sacramentum, and then the rest tantum. You've described, you know, like the kind of sign action quality of each of the sacraments uh, with respect to the rest sacramentum, having described, you know, the abiding presence of the sacrament in the Eucharist. It's peculiar insofar as our Lord Jesus Christ remains with us in our tabernacles and on our altars. And then you made reference to the rest tantum, namely the union of the mystical body in charity. I was wondering if there's a particular... Um, aspect of this sacramental theology, this Eucharistic theology, that you would commend to our listeners during this year of revival as especially pertinent to their study or especially pertinent to their meditation as they seek to grow their contemplative lives in union with our Lord in the Most Blessed Sacrament? Sure, thank you. Well, let, let me just say that the unity and charity that is uh, augmented by the one who communicates worthily is intrinsically associated, when you say unity, unity with whom? It's not unity with yourself, nor is it simply unity with Jesus or unity with God. There, the new liturgy, and stressing the communal aspect, is on, on the mark. The, the uh, unity and charity, as it were, overflows into the church uh, for which the permanent presence of Christ, as you said, in the Eucharist becomes the visible sign. Where the Eucharist is, uh, there, from there, flows all that unites and makes lovers out of those around it with all of the difference, all of the distinctions being met, which we, we know about. Well, if I were to uh, suggest uh, the, now the answer to your question is I, I have, a, I have a, a text, which is very easy. You can get it on the internet. Read Ecclesia de Eucharistia, John Paul II. Uh, because, uh, well, to return to how we opened this conversation, one of the worst fatalities of post-conciliar sacramental theology was to forget about the Eucharist as a sacrifice. So much so was this the case, although I have the highest respect for our Dominican contract, Christoph Schoenborn, who was the kind of hands-on man architect of the uh, catechism. But the catechism itself, especially in the footnote that talks about the Eucharist and its sacrificial dimension, it stops at the very point where Trent makes the affirmation, it's a real and true sacrifice. That footnote had to be amended in the, in the typical edition. Uh, but in the earlier ones, there were even the catechism, I would say gave short shrift. And if you look at Sacrosanctum Concilium, I think I counted once. The Eucharist is spoken of as sacrifice, I think, about six times, most of them in footnotes. Matter of fact, I think almost all of them in footnotes. Now, all, all you have to do is uh, study a little bit of the Council of Trent to realize that the Reformation fought mightily against the, re the reductionism of the, the Eucharist by the 16th century Protestant reformers. You lived in Freiburg, you know, when you walk by 
the temple, which is the Protestant church. There was never Eucharist, but La Sen, or in German, Abendsmahl. Yeah, the Lord's Supper. So, um, sacrifice, yeah, sacrifice. And uh, is a very important element because remember, the old man doesn't give away without it. The transformation doesn't happen by magic. And uh, John Paul II and others recognized that, and that got corrected in Ecclesia de Eucharistia along with many, many other things. But it's a good read, and it, it kind of complements, I, I would say, much of John Paul II's magisterium complemented and exegeted the Second Vatican Council. And uh, I would say, my thesis at least of Ecclesia de Eucharistia complements Sacrosanctum Concilium certainly on the Eucharist. Wonderful. Well, um, we began with a good read, and we end with a good read, and we can turn in, in, in due course to the first recommendation, which is the book that you've written here, um, The Seven Sacraments of the Catholic Church, published by Baker Academic, available wherever Catholic books are sold. Actually, Baker Academic is not a Catholic publishing house, uh, but they're, they're very respectful uh, and solicitous for making this a you know, a beautiful Catholic publication in, in content and in form. Um, so um, I imagine that folks can get that on Amazon.com. Are there other outlets or places in which they can follow up with this book or with your work more generally? Well, that's kind of you to ask me, Father. Uh, and, but I regret to tell you, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, if anyone... You know, I've been around, I'm old, I've been around a long time. Uh, mo most of my books, with the exception of one, is uh, are still available on Amazon by title. And uh, hopefully that one will be reprinted in a revised version. Um, if anyone is interested in uh, Cesario studies, uh, they can go to the Ave Maria website where my CV is. But it's 50 pages, so they have to need a lot of energy. More, perhaps more easily, the Reinhard Hutter kindly edited a uh, fresher for me when I was much younger. And in it, he included a list of my articles, important articles up to that time. But, uh, you know, the world can get along without Romano Cesario. And it will, largely because of young Dominicans like you. Uh, everything that I have, I receive from the Dominicans, and in, and from that, everything I have, I receive from St. Thomas, and the tradition that follows him, to which we should pay more attention. So, uh, it's going to be carried on. I believe it shall. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much, Father Romanus, for taking the time uh, for your patience in explaining your book and for your solicitude for the people of God in writing it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Turning then to you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Off-Campus Conversations. We look forward to chatting with you every two weeks uh, as we follow up with Thomistic Institute speakers on recent publications or on lectures that they've given on campus or at retreats or at conferences of, you know, TI, various goings on. 
So uh, thanks so much again for tuning in. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.